You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, Esther. And hello, everyone else. Um, welcome to M Pavilion at 3pm this beautiful Saturday afternoon. How are the levels? Can everyone hear me? My name is Jan van Skyk and I'm here today in my capacity as the convener of the Writing and Concepts Lecture Series. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land on which we are gathered today the Bunurong, Bunurong and Wandri Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to all their elders, dating back many thousands of years, those in the present and those that are emerging from those long-standing communities. I would also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders joining us today. Thanks to Jen Zielenska and the rest of the team at the M Pavilion for hosting what is the 121st event in the Writing and Concept series. This event is being recorded. Please let us know if you'd like your likeness edited out. Okay, now we can start. Today's presentation, Regulatory Nonsense, I Forced a Bot to Write Building and Planning Regulation is by Lauren Adams. Before you hear from Lauren, I'm just going to read you her bio. Lauren Adams is a disciplinary promiscuous spatial technologist and researcher practitioner with the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. Trained in architecture, in part at RMIT Architecture and Urban Design and Public Policy, her current research explores the socio-spatial exploit as an instrument for thinking with planetary urban power structures. Previously, Lauren led the computational design specialist team at Grimshaw Architects in Melbourne and was the inaugural coordinator of the Melbourne School of Design Robotics Lab. There's more. She began her career working as a fine art fabricator in Los Angeles. Today's presentation will expound the specific things governing bodies choose specific things governing bodies choose to regulate and the methods they use to evaluate evaluate compliance tell a story about what we as a society collectively value. What might the world be like if poets wrote our building and planning regulations? What if regulations were written by other non-technical writers too, not just poets, but also storytellers, songwriters, screenwriters, artists, choreographers, and philosophers? In regulatory, no regulatory nonsense, building and planning codes, standards, policies, legislations, and regulations are iteratively written and rewriting using a suite of Clumsy bespoke, this good timing of the word clumsy. Clumsy bespoke natural language processing artificial intelligence bots that have been trained on poetry, fiction, and de descriptive prose. It is an algorithmic seance with conceptual friends, a synthetic cacophony of Californian literary greats, co authors, the new Los Angeles zoning code, eco feminists, rewrite building waste and landfill regulations, and the Japanese conceptual artist architects, Madeleine Ginz and Arakawa, are resurrected to reimagine stair regulations for the National Construction Code of Australia. If you have any burning questions during the talk, please hold on to them, and Lauren will endeavour to answer them after the talk. Please welcome Lauren. Thank you, Jan, for the wonderful introduction. Um, thank you all for being here. This is my very first public talk, so um, very exciting, very <laughs> terrifying as well. Um, it's, it's really great to be here in person as well. Um, of course, masks aren't required at the moment. Um, please refrain from licking the face of the person sitting next to you if you can possibly avoid it. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of a language warning as well. Um, I do use one swear word in this talk. Um, 
So for those of you who would prefer not to hear a swear word, um, when you hear the word parrot, um, the sentence after that has got a four-letter word starting with F that is a swear word. Um, that being said, again, this is a public talk and um, I am from Western Australia, so this is not my native dialect. My native dialect is Bogan English and... <laughs> That, for those of you who have been to Western Australia, is really just like stringing together lots of swear words and kind of metaphors about animals. So um, I'll try to keep it to a minimum where I can, but I do ask your forgiveness for any that kind of slip out. Um, so for brevity today, um, I'm also going to be calling um, codes, standards, policies, guidelines regulations and legislation. I'm just going to be calling them all regulations. Um, if we have any public policy kind of wonks in the audience, I'm aware that there's an imprecision about that. Um, but frankly, it's kind of a mouthful to say. And for my purposes, all I really care about is that they're instruments of urban governance and also that they're made of text. So when I say regulation, that's kind of what I mean. I'm going to read a couple of small excerpts that I've put together today. Um, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of ad-libbing to kind of talk you through what the bot does. Um, and then I'm going to kind of end by giving you um, some examples of some clauses that um, my bots have generated over the past few years. So, what do you do when your world starts to fall apart? It's with this question that the famous anthropologist Anna Lohenhart Singh begins the prologue to her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. Can I get a show of hands, anyone who's read that book or heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> Alain's read a book, everyone. Um, so for those of you who haven't heard of this book, The Mushroom at the End of the World is an ethnographic study of a specific Japanese mushroom called the Matsutake, which is an incredibly valuable commodity. So at, at certain times in Japan, um, this particular mushroom fetches such high prices that it's considered the most valuable mushroom in the world. But the interesting thing about this mushroom is that it also grows in ruins. So it grows in human-disturbed forests, in the cracks of landscapes that are being blasted by bombs. And in fact, the subtitle of Anna's book is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. So when her world starts to fall apart, Anna Singh goes for a walk. And she tells us if she's really lucky, she finds mushrooms. For Anna, finding mushrooms in unexpected places is a reminder that hope can sprout from even the most ruinous landscapes. They're little fungal pleasures amidst the terrors of indeterminacy ambivalent about the circumstances of their existence and determined to exist anyway. So like Anna, and probably like some of you as well, I also like to go for a walk when my world is falling apart. But since I trained as an architect and not an anthropologist, I don't look for mushrooms. I look for regulatory anomalies in the built environment. It's kind of a niche, a niche pastime, I admit. So my mushrooms are all of the out-of-place insertions in the built environment, those comfortable adjacencies between objects and spaces and programs that wouldn't ordinarily coexist. My mushrooms are the building code violations, but also their counterparts, those glorious acts of malicious compliance where an architecture that's hamstrung by bureaucracy becomes dissident through meticulous obedience to regulation. I look for moments when building volumes contort around restrictive covenants, or when you see what is quite clearly an unpermitted roof terrace, cloaked by a parapet turned into a sneaky balustrade. I think you guys all know the ones. Or when clusters of gleaming new towers are forced to pull back from ramshackle holdout dwellings in uneasy compliance with, with overshadowing regulations. So collectively, all of these anomalies remind me that hope can sprout from even the most monotonous cityscapes. They are little architectural pleasures amidst the terrors of indeterminacy, at once brilliant and strange. I think I'm drawn to these moments because they're evidence, they're tangible evidence that difference is determined not just to exist but to flourish in the cracks that form between the competing demands of finance, regulatory compliance and whatever is left of design intention. Sometimes, and it accompanies me on these walks, I have a Speechify text-to-speech app um, and it has this beta Gwyneth Paltrow voice, which is pretty great. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't get a little bit of a kick out of getting Gwyneth Paltrow to read me scathing critiques of capitalism. <laughs> it's kind of the main reason that I got this up. Um, <laughs> so while I wander the streets of Melbourne's inner north, foraging for traces of regulatory anomalies, a robotic Gwyneth Paltrow Anna Singh amalgam reads me The Mushroom at the End of the World and Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, which is another book that Anna co-edited. The cyberneticist Donna Haraway is with us too, because isn't she always? 
She's making trouble and kin in the voice of a cartoon wizard named narrator, British male. So this is what I, I do when my world starts to fall apart. To be clear, um, I, don't, I don't know Anna Singh or Donna Haraway. Um, I know them only through their writing. And I think because I'm enamoured by their prose, I consider us to be kind of conceptual friends. And because we spend so much time together walking, looking at buildings, trying to find regulatory anomalies in the built environment, I often wonder when I'm walking, what would the world be like if Anna Singh and Donna Haraway wrote our building and planning regulations? And what if regulations were written by other non-technical writers too? So poets, storytellers, choreographers, philosophers, all my favourite conceptual friends. And it's with those questions that my regulatory nonsense project really emerges. So, it's a light-hearted romp through building and planning regulations, so giddy up, everyone. Why this fascination with regulations? So the specific things that our governing bodies choose to regulate and the methods that they use to evaluate compliance tell a story about what we as a society collectively value. And put simply, a regulation is a formalised way of asking two questions about the built environment. First, is it any good? Or more specifically, is it good enough? And secondly, how do we know? So the first of these questions demands a consensus about what constitutes good enoughness. And the second demands consensus about what are acceptable forms of proof or evidence. And this in turn, of course, influences the way that we model, draw, document, propose building projects for regulatory approval. So when we as spatial practitioners, architects, designers, um, when we put together all of the documentation that we need to demonstrate regulatory compliance to an authority, we're effectively putting forward an argument for the worthiness or the good enoughness of an architectural object to be brought into existence. And I think that's a really critical thing. The thing is, though, compliance isn't actually goodness. It's really an abstraction of some momentary consensus about goodness that has been negotiated by representative experts. And then it gets compiled into lines of text so that we spatial practitioners have access, unified access, to actionable, unambiguous and ideally calculable proxies for a world that is not wholly calculable. And it used to be that regulations inscribed the bare minimum standards of acceptability, beyond which we as spatial practitioners could kind of do whatever we want. So we're free to kind of roam, exert independent design agendas, um, you know, whatever we kind of like. And this is really important because I think design intention is a critical kind of recalibrating force. So whenever we start to kind of, the, whenever there's a decoupling, I suppose, between the is it any good and how do we know, well, design intention is really there to kind of bring those things back together. In practice, I would say the role of the regulation has started to shift. Um, and this is my experience of practice. Um, I think it's probably some of yours as well for those of you who work as designers. Under the weight of relentless, aggressive, cost-cutting and value management processes, contemporary building projects are routinely stripped of any features that do not either translate to an increase in profit margins or contribute to achieving regulatory compliance. Um, I remember being in a meeting once, actually, and um, there was this conversation about a spreadsheet within which someone had kind of come up with um, the precise value that a single tree provided if a tenant of a building had a view to that tree. Um, so I call this the commodity tree, um, which is harder to say than it is to write. Um, and I think this is really fascinating because it means that it's someone's job somewhere to kind of extract as much value as possible out of every single tree in the project budget or to make it so that one tree has <laughs> provides a view to as many possible tenancies. Um, and this is kind of a fascinating part of, I think, contemporary, contemporary building practice. What this means for us, though, is that compliance hurdles that once dictated bare minimum standards of acceptability have become acceptable stopping points. So the good enoughness has now become that's enoughness. And I think that as the space of contingency, of possibility and of recalibration between design intention and bare minimum compliance collapses, the regulation, operating as both an instance of common values and a necessary precondition of spatial production, 
takes on far greater urgency as a site of creative resistance. So, what are we doing in response to this? I'm not the first person to have noticed value management processes, certainly. Um, but at the moment, to compensate for declining efficacy, regulations, along with the organisations that, that create and enforce them, proliferate. So when mandatory government regulation is inept or political will for regulatory change is absent, independent accreditation organisations spring up, offering proprietary point scoring systems and bespoke brands of goodness all for a training or membership or certification or accreditation fee. And this is especially um, evident, I think, in environmental sustainability at the moment. This proliferation is then further accelerated by the rapid advancement of new tools and technologies for modelling, simulating and sensing the built environment. We now have more ways to count, measure, calculate and check more complex proxies for goodness, until our consultants need consultants, and then those consultants need consultants, and then suddenly we need a new kind of consultant to coordinate communication between all of our consultants. This is something I refer to as consultant inception. So what do we do about this? How do we proceed? Well, unfortunately, I'm not queen of the world, so I can't really do a lot about this. Um, but what I can do <laughs> is um, test, test a theory. Um, I think that we need to break down what we want from our regulations to three things. We want to incentivise goodness in design, really, really sincere goodness. We want regulations to be both manageable and meaningful in their complexity, and we want them to be resilient in the face of aggressive value management processes. And remember that to demonstrate compliance is to put forward an argument for the worthiness or the good enoughness of a building to be built. I think that for a building to be worthy of existence, worthy of the materials it needs to devour, worthy of the emissions it will inevitably produce, worthy of the multi-species communities it seeks to displace, and worthy of the hours and months of life it absorbs as labour. Well, for a building to be worthy of that, I think it must absolutely be more than merely a technical construct or a vehicle for speculative value extraction. I think that to justify the violence of their existence, buildings have an obligation to be expressive, compelling and poetic, even at the threshold of bare minimum compliance. And I think that if the building industry as a collective, of which I am a part, whether for reasons of malice, greed, ambivalence, inertia, or simply short-term survival, is unwilling or unable to safeguard the poetic qualities of our built environment, well, perhaps poetry needs to be mandated too. So here we return to the question, what if poets wrote our building and planning regulations? Um, so I've been thinking about this question for a really, really long time. Um, and recently I tried to kind of go back through some old notes to, to pinpoint exactly when this kind of first popped into my mind. The first kind of documented evidence I have of this, um, this kind of theme or this frustration was sometime between the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016. And I just relocated back to Australia from, from Los Angeles. And at that time, I was thinking about kind of getting together a bunch of, like, poets, actual human poets, um, and getting them to write building and planning regulations. But the thing is, I don't know any poets, and I don't really know how you go about meeting a poet in the 21st century. <laughs> Um, I wasn't sure whether maybe there's a, like an app that you could use or if there's maybe like a, a, a place that, that poets like to hang out um, or maybe they're just kind of lurking amongst us, kind of, kind of just like regular people. Um, but I wasn't really sure kind of where to find my poets. And um, of course, I'm, you know, resourceful enough person. I probably could have figured it out. But the other problem was really that I didn't have any money to pay the poets and I'm not about to kind of ask for a bunch of free labour from an already precarious work workforce. So every time this question kind of popped into my mind, I would think to myself, that's kind of interesting. And then I would just, you know, set it aside until a solution came to me. And like so many other projects I've worked on, the solution came to me in the form of an argument between strangers on the internet. So, on the 21st of February 2018, 
A comedian and writer from the United States, Keaton Patty, posted an image of what appeared to be an excerpt from a screenplay for the Jerry Springer show to the popular microblogging and social networking platform Twitter under the user handle Keaton Patty. The text accompanying Patty's image read, I forced a bot to watch over a thousand episodes of Jerry Springer and then asked it to write an episode of its own. Here is the first page. In the image, black text on a white background is composed to give the impression of something generated by a machine. From the monospaced career typeface to the all caps heading, predictive text Jerry Springer, that reads more like a file name than a title for a television episode. The content of the screenplay, meanwhile, is syntactically legible, but semantically nonsensical. It conjures images of a notorious tabloid talk show host atop his trash throne aflame, and two tumbleweeds fighting while an audience chants the names of characters from the hit 1990s sitcom Seinfeld. So Patty's bot is apparently incapable of distinguishing between two celebrity Jerry's, a Seinfeld and a Springer, and we, the internet trolling masses, are charmed by its clumsy comedic faux pas. By March of 2018, Patty's screenplay tweets had multiplied and tw other Twitter users had begun to appropriate and parody the meme template to force a bot to watch and write and do other things. With each new version, the tide of virality swelled for Patty. He allegedly forces a bot to watch Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Saw movies, Transformers movies, Dr. Phil episodes, which is my personal favourite, Fox News segments. And then on June 13th, Patty tweets, I forced a bot to watch over a thousand hours of Olive Garden commercials. For those of you who don't know, Olive Garden is like a sort of cheaper Italian restaurant franchise in the United States. So this becomes Patty's most popular tweet. It is so wildly popular that he garners more than 100,000 retweets and 265,000 likes in only two days. Now, this is about an argument between strangers on the internet, so now's the argument. The day after Patty's viral Olive Garden tweet, Janelle Shane, a research scientist and author of the popular technology humour blog AI Weirdness, took to Twitter to debunk Patty's claims. In the first of 12 sequential posts, she tweeted, these I forced a bot to watch X posts are almost certainly 100% human written with no bot involved. Here's how you can tell. So from there, Shane explained the limitations of natural language processing with neural nets. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, um, natural language processing is, I guess, a sub-discipline of computational linguistics and artificial intelligence. It's concerned primarily with a computer's ability to understand and generate text in a way that is kind of convincingly human. So Shane explained the kind of training data and expertise you'd need if you wanted to automate the generation of screenplay text. She also points out that it's highly unlikely that a single person would be able to gather a thousand hours of 30-second commercials. And she walked us through the stumbling grammar and dreamlike meandering of a bot that consistently forgets what it's doing before concluding that actual AI-written text just isn't that coherent. So the jig was up. Patty had been outed as a fraud, there were no bots here, no algorithmic magic. Patty was just another human pretending to be a computer, pretending to be a human in humanity's long history of mechanical Turks. And I know what you're thinking. It's kind of unbelievable that someone would misrepresent themselves on the internet. <laughs> now, because you've all used the internet before, I'm sure you can guess what happens next. Inevitably, there is a proliferation of snarky, self-righteous online think pieces. We thought it was pretty obvious, insisted a Gizmodo science writer with the profile picture of a parrot in the op-ed equivalent of an eye roll. That was the, the word parrot, if you didn't hear it. Of course they're not real. A bot trained on infomercials wouldn't know how to say fuck. By December of 2018, I forced a bot was labelled 2018's most annoying Twitter trend and almost definitely fake. So that concludes the kind of argument part. Um, for both Patty and Shane, it sort of didn't matter because both of them ended up with book deals out of this little Twitter beef, um, which I guess goes to show that there's no such thing as bad publicity. But here's the thing. On February 19th of 2019, so almost a year to the day since Patty's very first I forced a bot tweet, Janelle Shane returns to Twitter with an update. By late 2018, the thing that Patty had broadly but falsely claimed to be possible had actually become possible. And this was thanks to the release of OpenAI's suite of generative pre-training, or GPT, 
natural language processing models. So specifically here, I'm going to be talking about the first two public releases of those models, GPT and GPT-2. And so it's at this point that I'm going to look away from my screen. I'm just going to like explain to you what these things do. So a GPT model, um, before we even receive the model as a kind of member of the general public, this thing is already broadly able to simulate the syntax and semantics of the English language at a word, sentence and, and phrase level. Um, so it's something that kind of already understands English before we kind of get to it. What we're then able to do as kind of end users is to gather um, our own significantly smaller fine-tuning data set and we're able to kind of retrain the model. And in retraining the model, um, what it's able to do is kind of extract all of the linguistic biases from our fine-tuning set but it always maintains its existing or its pre-existing understanding of the English language. So for us as end users, um, some cockatoos really excited about GPT. Um, <laughs> for us as end users, this is a really significant kind of like leap in technology, primarily because the second version of GPT was trained on, on text from something like 8 million um, web pages. Um, so this is something that the average user is just not going to have either the expertise or the computational kind of resources to be able to pull off by themselves. Um, and the thing that you're left with once you've kind of fine-tuned a model of your own is like a really sophisticated, bespoke, autocomplete bot. So it's kind of like you know, you're typing something into Google and it sort of finishes a sentence for you. It's essentially that, um, but what it's done is it's absorbed the bias of this fine-tuning data set that you've kind of given it. Um, so for me, this is really exciting um, because, firstly, I don't need to know any human poets. <laughs> All I need is a significant data set of text that is poetic. Um, so I do apologise to any poets who I've just kind of automated out of a job um, after being so concerned about not paying them. Um, it also means that um, I can do this really wonderful thing um, called regulatory nonsense. Um, so I've made three versions of this bot to date. Um, the first... What I was trying to do was create a kind of synthetic cacophony of literary greats from Los Angeles and use that to kind of rewrite the Los Angeles zoning code. So we've got kind of like Eve Babbitts, Joan Didion, um, a little bit of Mike Davis, um, you know, Helen Hunt Jackson, along with some screenplays. Um, so Who Framed Roger Rabbit gets a little bit of a mention in there, along with the transcript for um, this wonderful documentary by Tom Anderson called Los Angeles Plays Itself. So what I was hoping to do there is kind of gather up these literary greats and see what would happen if they rewrote the Los Angeles zoning code. The next version that I did was called Waste Not Want Bot. And here I was specifically commissioned to create um, an art piece that, that talked about landfill regulations, building waste and landfill regulations for the Victorian state of Victoria. So I thought, well, this is where we bring along the eco-feminists. And this is where I kind of dragged in Donna Haraway, Anna Singh, Ursula Le Guin, J.G. Ballard, um, science fiction authors, um, fictocritical kind of writing. And I kind of synthesised that and used it to rewrite building waste and landfill regulations for Victoria. And the final version of this, I thought, well, what if we kind of like narrow the scope a little? Like, what if I just focus on a kind of singular author? Or in this case, it's a pair of authors. So... Um, I looked at the works of Madeleine Ginz and Arakawa, who are, are quite famous, um, now deceased Japanese conceptual artist architects um, duo, and they have a lot of really strong kind of anti-ergonomic sentiments. Um, and I love their writing. They kind of, Madeleine Ginz in particular already writes as though she's a bot, um, which is sort of convenient for my purposes. And I thought, well, what if Madeleine Ginz and Arakawa rewrote stair regulations, just something as simple as that? Um, so that's what I did for the final, and that one's called Bloopbot. So, broadly speaking, the fine-tuning data set, the kind of thing that you train it with to begin with, is a way of kind of setting the global characteristics of the model. Um, so it would be kind of like me giving you, you already understand English, and can read English. I give you a stack of my favourite books and I say, go away and read them. And you're a really fast reader, so you do that really quickly. Um, and then when you come back to me, you've kind of absorbed some of those biases, but perhaps not in the way that I absorbed them when I read the text as a human. And then I ask you a question. I ask you to kind of finish sentences for me. And inevitably, some of the kind of traces, the kind of linguistic baggage that I've kind of given you from my favourite text will kind of come through in the kind of um, the thing that I ask you to do. 
Um, but I don't have to ask you things specifically about that text. I can ask you anything. I can ask you, you know, like what type of shoes to buy or whatever, and it will kind of give you some answer that's predicated on that. Um, so as a kind of autocomplete bot, that's really useful. Um, but I was really interested specifically in writing regulations. So the prompt statement, the statement that I actually like give to the bot and ask it to finish the sentence or the paragraph, um, the way that I link the kind of broad text generating capabilities of the bot with text for regulation specifically was by kind of trawling through existing regulatory documents and pulling out the kind of first part of sentences or clauses in existing regulatory documents. Um, so this kind of allowed me to, so for the Los Angeles zoning code, there was a current draft for like a new unified zoning code that was kind of currently, um, currently available for comment. And so I used that and the additional, um, the previous 1946 code, a bunch of urban design guidelines, which I know are not strictly enforceable, but still have some pretty fun language to play with, the City of Los Angeles Municipal Code and the Architects Practice Cap Act of California. Um, similarly, with Waste Not Want Bot, um, I looked at Victorian state and Commonwealth level documents relating to building waste, landfill and environment. So you have the kind of classic ones like the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 99, which is a Commonwealth level one, and the Environmental Protection Act. And funnily enough, there's quite a lot of similarities in that document. Things like the Sustainability Victoria Act um, or the Recycling and Waste Reduction Act. Um, and then I took it a little bit further because I'm an architect and I looked at clauses that talked about the suitability of materials and things like that in the National Construction Code and I started kind of pulling all those things apart. And then Bloopbot was a little easier, um, just two volumes of the Building Code of Australia um, and Australian Standard AS 1657-2018, which is also about stairwells. Um, so once you kind of have these prompts extracted, the next thing you can do is just subtly, kind of incrementally change them. So I would do things like switch modal verbs, so change like must to could to needs to may. Um, I would add often colloquial or descriptive prefixes. So I would add things like let's in front of the, the prompt or we could in front of the prompt. And this kind of like snaps the bot out of thinking that it's a regulatory clause a little bit. A toggle between articles and possessive pronouns. So the or an becomes our or each. I'd insert deliberately passive adverbs, like probably. I think probably is kind of fantastic because you would never see probably in a building regulation. Use synonyms, um, and you can also do things like just truncate prompts down to fewer and fewer words. So collectively, these really, really small moves, subtle linguistic variations in the design of the prompt variable can actually significantly influence the local characteristics of the output. So I'm going to give you an example from Bloopbot. I hope you're excited to hear your first bot clause. Um, really kind of burying the lead here a little bit, which is not very Hollywood of me. So we start, from, we start with a, a clause for goings and rises in the National Construction Code. A stairway must have. And this can also become a stairway must, a stairway, a stairway should, a stairway should probably be, the stairway should have, each stairway could have, our staircases may, the purpose of a stair is, you know. So very quickly, we end up with this proliferating suite of barely different prompt statements. And they can yield dramatically different results, even with the, the same fine-tuning data set. So here are some examples from Bloopbot version one. <clears throat> I feel like I should put my bot voice on for this. A stairway must lead to a palace. For this is the capital of the realm, and the palace is not to be underestimated. It is not a palace at all, but a palace of the people. This is what the architects have been trying to tell us all along, that the palace is the capital of the people and that they are the architects. <laughs> if we then say a stairway must have, a stairway must have been a sort of lowering down into nothingness, a sort of sleight of hand, a kind of lateral opening between the two walls of the space where the stairways meet. I love the idea that this could be a fire stair. Um, <laughs> A stairway should probably be designed to accommodate at least two people at once. It makes it possible for the body to situate itself at different angles so that in the event of an emergency, you have to adjust your position at different angles to be in the best possible company. <laughs> this one's about to get really intense, so hold on to your chairs, everyone. Each stairway could have been closed using a fire escape. 
But just when you thought you were down, a violent hangover brings a renewed elation to your body. You look around and see what has been left of the machine. You jump up in joy, and then, by chance, a bright glow comes over you as if it had been set in motion. When the sun goes down, a wink of gladness emerges, which forces you to disperse for a moment. But the ghosts of your doomed days are still haunting you. And, unhappily, as you look back, you begin to feel the closeness of the house you live in. Above all else, this fascinating visual manifestation challenges the conventional view of architecture. Um, we can have a conversation at the end about what it means to demonstrate compliance with a clause like that. Um, my students lurking in the audience know all about that. Um, so I ended up with something like with a little less than 100 kind of origin prompts. And from there, they kind of proliferated into 752 kind of slightly different prompt variable permutations. So the other thing we can do th with this is um, to kind of add definitional prefixes or suffixes. So you can add something like the purpose of or the objective of, um, or you can say like is or means or means that um, as a way to kind of define some of these terms, um, particularly for, for clauses that explicitly name concepts, like things like equity or safety or incentives um, or objects like landings or waste material or private outdoor amenity spaces. And I think as we start to shift towards performance-based regulations and, and away from some more prescriptive counts and measurements, we're starting to see a lot more of the kind of like buzzword-laden language that is kind of like aspirational but also a little vacuous um, in its deployment. So when people kind of talk about urban spaces that, you know, promote safety um, or, or a staircase that that is about providing safety from falling. Um, sustainability is another one that is kind of like typically very ill-defined in regulations. So it's great when you have a bot because you can just ask the bot to kind of clarify itself or define those statements for you. So for example, if I wanted to know what the purpose of a landing was, I could just say, the purpose of a landing is. And then Bloopbot would tell me, the purpose of a landing is to allow the stairway to persist both vertically and horizontally. Spouts and cranes support the living space and help to balance the relief of the inevitable pressure, which will occasionally cause vertical templating. You could also ask it to define something like safety from falling by just adding the suffix means that. So here, safety from falling means that you take it very literally, that you throw it with all your might and everything you're holding onto when you plummet into emptiness. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I thought it was anyway. Safety from falling means that the body can no longer be controlled, that it has to be controlled by a single hand. People like me are only interested in the physical. We don't care about the mental or the emotional. We simply want the world to be controlled. And that is why we create chaos. <laughs> chaos is what makes chaos effective. Chaos does not create chaos. Chaos creates chaos. <laughs> it's very self-assured when it kind of spits out this nonsense. So in this case, um, that was using a temperature of 0.8 and a C to 3, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means. But if I was to add an additional kind of prefix in front of that and say, when descending a staircase, safety from falling means that, and keep all of the other variables the same. Um, and I added when descending a staircase because I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole of like trying to figure out how people died on, on staircases. Um, I don't recommend you do that. It's, it's not a lighthearted romp. Um, but usually you're more likely to fall walking down a staircase than up it. Um, so when descending a staircase, safety from falling means that you're in imminent danger of experiencing instant death. Death itself is a paradox, an endless loop where the body is only a moment from taking hold of the next stair and then the next until finally the body has lost its grip on the next stair and it is all or nothing. Um, so... Good times, good times. Okay, so um, I'm going to give you a couple of examples now to kind of talk about um, some of the kind of the levers that we have to control, um, I guess, the local characteristics. So we know that there's a prompt statement that we kind of use to autocomplete. We know that the global characteristics of the model are broadly set by the fine-tuning data set. Um, but there are two other variables that are really important, a temperature variable and a seed variable. So the temperature variable, um, which is, this is kind of like the, the big flashy one, is it's a decimal number between zero and one. Flashy, I know. Um, and it controls the relative boldness or risk aversion of the bot. So a low temperature value, which I would say is anywhere between zero and 0 
It's comparatively conservative, which means it's more likely to directly plagiarise from its source material, um, or sometimes it becomes stuck in a repetitive loop. At worst, this just manifests as like a really unhelpful repetition of a single word. Um, but at best, it can read like a kind of meditative chant. Um, so for example, at a temperature of 0.2, here's an example. We could establish an incentive zoning system that delivers to the maximum, 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 maximum. It just keeps saying maximum kind of indefinitely. Um, but for a different prompt, um, and this is one that was kind of taken from Sustainability Victoria um, Act. I added we could in front of a clause that was foster a stewardship ethos. And uh, the kind of language of, of foster a stewardship ethos is already kind of evocative. Um, so even at point two, we start to get, we could foster a stewardship ethos on the part of the people who live in the ruins. The people who live in the ruins are the ones who have to face the consequences of what we have done. The people who live in the ruins are the ones who have to face the consequences of what we have done. The people who live in the ruins are the ones who have to face the consequences of what we have done. It just kind of keeps repeating that. Um, okay, so turn it up to point four. When descending a staircase, safety from falling means that you are free to move freely about, freely choose and freely choose what you wish to do. The ascent of a staircase is a journey that takes you from one place to another, from one place to another, from place to place, from place to place, from place to place, and it just keeps saying that. Um, or at point four, careful consideration must be given to the nature of the problem, to the extent that it is not simply a technical one, but a social one. The problem is not one of technicality, but one of sociality. The problem is not one of technicality, but of sociality. The problem is not one of technicality, but of sociality. I think that's trying to point out that maybe the problem is not one of technicality, but sociality. It's a little vague. Okay, so moderate to high temperatures this is where the magic happens. This is anything from 0.6 to 1.0, and this is where the bot becomes progressively bolder and less predictable. A hot bot can do anything from switching tenses. Um, it often just digresses from its prompt in meandering and dreamlike ways. Um, it can descend into nonsensical dialogue, um, complete with quotation marks, like it kind of literally writes kind of quotation marks. It can reference fictional, historical or celebrity characters. And sometimes it even invents entire businesses with non-existent websites. So here's one. And this is at point six. All materials for the project are available for purchase from the North American Distributors of Glass, Inc. Or from the North American Distributors of Glass, Inc. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www.northamericandistributors.com. Now I looked this up. North American Distributors of Glass, Inc. is not a registered business in the United States or in Australia. And its listed website returns a non-existent domain error. So the bot has completely made this up. This one's one of my favourites. Um, the urban form offers glimpses of a place where life takes on a certain theatrical quality. And at certain moments, the experience becomes more intense. The architecture, therefore, can have a certain theatrical quality. The idea of architecture as a scientific art is not new. Some early modernist architects, such as Carlotta Baba, Antonio Banderas, <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre, and others, <laughs> have built their empires on the idea of a scientific architecture. That is definitely why Antonio Banderas is famous. It's not for the Mask of Zorro. Um, so I went through my fine-tuning data set with a fine-tooth comb here, and neither the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre nor the actor Antonio Banderas was explicitly named in that fine-tuning data set. Carlotta Baba doesn't seem to be a person. I did a bunch of social media stalking and couldn't find her anywhere. Um, so she's just a kind of imaginary friend of La La Bot. Um, I think that she is named after a minor character called Carlotta Mendenhall Fisher in Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays, which was one of the texts that was kind of included in this cacophony of literary greats. Um, it's the only thing I can kind of think of. So I'm going to read you another one at a temperature of one. This one's hectic. Architects must act in service of the church. And yet it is a church that has become a thief in its own right. The grand juxtaposition of the two claims is staggering. Where once a common grievance had been an argument or complaint, now it is a feud, like a disagreement between two dogs. An eye against an eye. The difference is so great. Such intensity, such intensity. It is almost incomprehensible. 
The whole country knows that the, whole, the grand juxtaposition is the real thing. It is the line of sight between two perfect lines, between honourable and dishonest, between which it flees, no room but the abyss. <laughs> it's like, what does that even mean? Um, so you can see here that at, at a high temperature, the bots have a tendency to kind of really exercise their respective poetic licences and just kind of drag us further and further from the normative um, linguistic kind of styling, <laughs> I suppose, of regulations. So we can do a little bit of audience participation, but not, nothing too crazy. Um, I'm going to read you a clause now, and I want to kind of get a general sense. I want you guys to guess what temperature this was at. The penalty for misuse of materials was death. We're not going to the zoo, said the CTN. We're going to the zoo. We're going to the zoo, said the CTN, outraged. We're going to the zoo, he shouted. We're going to the zoo. The guard stood up. Sit down, all of you, he said. He pointed to the guard's empty chair. Sit down, all of you. The CTN sat down. He looked around the room. Where's my wallet? I lost my wallet somewhere. I'm so mad at my wife, I can't remember my own damn name. Hot butt. Hot butt. Can I get a show of hands who thinks it's point 0.8 or, yeah? Okay, so did you say point 0.6? Yeah, so that one's only point 0.6, um, which is kind of wild. And I suspect the kind of mentions of the CTNs um, and the kind of dissent of di dialogue is really because I included JG Ballard in this fine-tuning data set and I think I also had a few other texts that, um, that were novels and they had a significant amount of dialogue. So even at a, a you know, comparatively low, like moderate temperature, um, this thing just also kind of lost its mind a little bit. Okay, how are we doing for time? Oh, going over a little bit. Okay, so the seed value is the next one that's kind of interesting. Um, this is an integer value that's um, greater than or equal to one. It's kind of like a pseudo-random trigger um, to initialise the generation of text. And I, like to, I liken this to the computational equivalent of just like shaking a bag of words or letters and kind of drawing them out one by one, um, which is not to be mistaken for something called a bag of words model, which is a real thing in natural language processing. I'm just using it as an analogy. Um, so if you were to take a random set of five and then you were to combine it with an ascending temperature, so let it get progressively hotter, and an identical kind of prompt and fine-tuning kind of um, data set, you're going to get similar but progressively bolder outputs. So let's, let's see seed five, la la bot, and we're going to do 0 0.6, 0 0.8, and then one. Movement through the cityscape must begin in the foreground. The foreground is the foreground and the shadows are the shadows. The foreground is the foreground and the shadows are the shadows. And then it just kind of repeats that. When we turn it up to 0.8, we get movement through the cityscape must begin in the foreground. So it's the same kind of first sentence. But then she goes, landscape composition and volume in movement and movement through the city are central concepts in the study of movement and architecture. In the architecture of architecture, spatial composition is generally defined as the interplay between light and shadow, movement and position and orientation. And when we turn it up to one, movement through the cityscape must begin like a slow step from the ground. The city ends as if the luminous scaffold had once taken form in a subtle envelope. It exists solely in the relation of the existing building. So you can kind of see there's like a similar kind of trace, um, trace through there. And I'll kind of skip ahead a little bit because I've got so many examples of this. And over the course of the last couple of years, I've generated 33,865 clauses. Um, we're not gonna have time to read all those today. Some of them are frankly quite terrible as well. Um, sometimes the bots mandate that architects travel on webbed feet across open terrain at night or drive a great acceleration machine that gets fully airborne. That's why I went to architecture school. Other times the bots produce familiar legalese extrapolated to dizzying unfamiliar extremes. La La Bot, for example, invents new planning commissions which each consists of a separate process of complying with the complying process. And the complying process includes complying with the complying process and complying with the complying process. And then unhelpfully insists that a zone is zoned in a certain way. In one output, Waste Not One Bot blames the New York Times for climate misinformation. In another, she insists that the penalty for misuse of materials ought to be death by poisoning. 
And in fact, any time I asked for a penalty for misuse of materials, um, the penalty was always death, but there were some pretty creative deaths that the bot came up with. There are stairways with a trajectory like a boat or something, doors leading to other worlds, an inclusive zoning system where at least two people can stand in front of the public at a given time and know precisely where they're standing and what they're doing. There are even interior spaces that must be vast and dramatic, like a fiery stream or a vast sea, building materials that are merely extensions of thought and suggestions for form-based zoning whereby the urban form encourages users to gaze skyward, then move higher, higher up, higher still, until they reach a point where they can see the entire city. So, we're kind of at time, so unfortunately I probably do have to wrap up. But the thing that I would like to leave you with is the thing that I'm energised by with this project. I'm energised by this kind of image of a property developer or an architect standing side by side arguing for the worthiness of their latest collaboration according to these clauses. So an architect that acts out a compliance dance for a stare that is a, is a sort of lowering down into nothingness. Her black turtleneck muddied after travelling on webbed feet across open terrain at night. And I wonder in these scenarios, nonsensical as they are, what did she learn about the world, about architecture, or about herself on this mandated muddy jaunt? There are no maximum planning envelopes here in this scenario, only a requirement to prove that the city ends as if the luminous scaffold had once taken form in a subtle envelope. So in there, might open it up. I'm behind you. Thank you very much. That was really amazing. I've, I've got a question, but before I ask it, or if I ask it at all, um, we'd much rather hear from our audience. There is a roaming mic which is coming around with um, sanitising uh, technique attached to it, so you're free to use it with uh, a degree of safety. Are there any questions? Put your hand up and our roaming mic deliverer will be right over. then we won't get recorded. Hey. Do you think it can be applied to different cultures, like Aboriginal? That's a great question. Um, so the thing to understand about artificial intelligence generally, um, but especially about natural language processing, is that um, it's always going to be biased, right? And in this case, natural language processing algorithms are predominantly trained on text from American websites and they're almost exclusively in English, particularly American English. Um, I had a student a few semesters ago who did this really beautiful project not long after lockdown started um, and he was really interested in Indigenous engagement. So he trained the bot exclusively on text that was written in English um, by Indigenous authors and then he rewrote regulations. It was for a kind of education facility. Um, so he used the bot to kind of synthesise other voices. Um, I don't think that that's a replacement for, you know, genuine community engagement, but um, at, at the time it was a pretty interesting kind of project, I think. Um, the challenge is always going to be the fact that the English language is a particular thing that has certain historical kind of baggage associated with it. Other cultures maybe kind of speak differently and the algorithms are always going to kind of favour the like dominant kind of normative hegemony of, of what they're doing. So um, you can certainly kind of like use it to an extent, but I would be remiss if I said that it was never, it, it wasn't going to be kind of like always biased towards the kind of major fine-tuning set. You notice even like it, it will always default to like US English spelling and things like that. So um, English language is the default. Um, the kind of 8 million web pages that GPT-2 was kind of trained on are already going to be kind of laden with bias. Um, so it's, it's really difficult to kind of break that, I think, with artificial intelligence. Yeah. Thank you. This is super lots of fun. Um, it occurs to me that um, reading through um, regulatory texts um, 
they already seem very bot-like. Uh, there is such a, um, I mean, a certain kind of language, a certain kind of lack of colour and humanity. Um, and, and of course, um, as you say, our role is to be interpretive um, and hopefully experimental in ways as well. I wonder if some of your practice and some of your techniques have given you any insights into maybe exposing what is bot-like and then, I guess, contributing that back into policymaking for the greater good. So should this actually be implemented, I suppose? Um, <laughs> it's interesting you say that about Exist, text of existing regulatory documents. Um, so broadly, I would say that I've observed three kind of dominant linguistic styles in regulatory documents. So the first is um, dry prescriptive counts and measurements. Um, so this is something that you'd see in like the deemed to satisfy provisions of the National Construction Code. Um, we like to kind of count and measure things. This is really effective because it's an instrument of streamlined conflict resolution. So if I count the number of rises and you count the number of rises and then we check that number against like a written number in a clause, then we can very quickly agree that, you know, something is either compliant or non-compliant. So it, it, it puts a really hard kind of line between compliance and non-compliance. But of course, it's like an inevitably insufficient proxy for the real world. Like a, a compliance stare is not necessarily a good stare. Um, you know, putting a landing every 18th riser is not necessarily going to kind of keep you safe, nor is it going to make your kind of experience of using the stare good um, because that's such a kind of slippery thing to define. So then we start to see a shift towards performance-based regulation. Um, and I, I see this in a lot of kind of city branding, but also urban design guidelines, which is the other end of the spectrum. So this is where you get the kind of the vacuous buzzword-laden kind of aspirational stuff that talks about like an innovative kind of thing or, or sustainable or um, equitable or, um, I don't know, there's so many of these words that kind of get bandied around. Um, and that's a kind of like attempt to do the opposite of the deemed to satisfy kind of provisions. Um, and then I think the third type is the language of legislation, um, which I talk about as the kind of like creation of proper nouns and then the delegation of power between them. So it's kind of like the world's dullest chooser and adventure. Um, that for me is what legislation is because it's just the kind of, you know, you create like a minister and then you kind of like refer to specific clauses about that kind of thing. So you're constantly sort of skipping between clauses and objects within this kind of invented power structure. Um, I think what the bot is trying to do is figure out if there's like a kind of middle ground between all of those things. Um, not so prescriptive um, that we're kind of just deemed to kind of count and measure, you know, forever. Um, but not so sort of like vague and aspirational that it's just not helpful in us trying to kind of like make a good city. So somewhere between that. And um, I usually refer to this as the kind of precise deployment of ambiguity in poetry. So like is, you know, you see some of these clauses that, you know, an argument about people going to the zoo is not going to help <laughs> us make better regulations. But some of the other descriptors might. Um, and also being willing to kind of step away from this like, streamlined instrument of conflict resolution and force us to negotiate, to actually have a conversation about what compliance needs to be if it's, you know, a poetic, you know, ambiguous code. So I think it's kind of somewhere between those three styles. It's trying to add like a potency without being so prescriptive and without being so vague that it's kind of not helpful. Um, the automation part, um, I, I mean, I think that it's useful because a bot doesn't know what a regulation is. And so it doesn't kind of carry along that, that kind of baggage that says like, this is what a regulatory clause needs to look like. Like it doesn't know. Um, so you have this kind of back and forwards where you try to make it just regulation-y enough, but not so, reg not so regulation-y that <laughs> it just reads like any other kind of clause. Um, but again, not so wild that it's kind of not, not helpful. So there's a little bit of kind of calibration there, but the bot is just useful because it just doesn't know what a regulation is. So it gives you these like really sincere kind of like attempts to kind of recreate regulatory clauses. It's kind of just like a spiel about the language of regulation. So <laughs> that's what we're here for. Yeah. We've got time for one more. I think I'm getting waved out from the back. Um, Shall it be my question or is there someone who's got a better one? 
and we can have we can continue the conversation afterwards informally, of course, as well. So my question is about the um, the premise of goodness, which is underlying everything that you've been talking about. And in asking the question, I'm of course going to borrow from Arakawa and Gins. I'm very glad you mentioned them. I'm huge fans of theirs. They had a view that. Uh, the designing of everything to be easier to use was removing all obstacles from life. And this removing of obstacles was in fact what was causing us harm and to die sooner than we needed to die. So they, and they designed buildings that were deliberately difficult to use and then measured the um, happiness and longevity of the people living in the buildings and proved that they were in fact right. Um, so... Given that this goodness is, un is, is underneath all of your coding, if, if I can use that term, what's your take on their view on the inappropriateness of goodness in design? Cool. Um, so just like a nice, easy question to end, end things. <laughs> Thanks, Jan. Um, so um, I love Arakawa and Gins as well. Um, and I'm going, to get, I'm, I'm going to finish with like a little bit of an anecdote. Um, I supervised, co-supervised a major project um, a, a few years ago now. Um, Amy Howard did this really incredible major project and, and used the bot. She was one of my students in my class at RMIT. And in her moderation session, um, one of the other kind of high-level professors at um, RMIT asked me this question. Um, so is the bot writing regulations or polemic? And I was kind of nervous at the time um, and a little bit intimidated and immediately forgot what the word polemic meant. And so I just stared at him and said, yes. Um, but what I should have said, and I did a very George Costanza thing by like on my way home going like, oh, that's the thing I should have said. Polemic is, exists in every regulation, even when it is not explicitly defined. And I think regulatory documents are written in a way that makes them appear as though they're definitive, objective, factual documents, but they are not. They are like contested, they're dynamic, they're perpetually incomplete, and they are like laden with values, like things that we value. And they're also laden with perspectives about like what constitutes things like safety. Um, the Arakawa and Gins rewriting the stairs project that I did um, was really about kind of going, well, like, what is safety, you know? Like, is safety always having a handrail, always having kind of a landing at least once every 18 rises? Um, is, is safety kind of having this, like, architectural armature around it that, that makes the body invisible? I think one of the key takeaways I have for Arakawa and Gins is that they were very against ergonomics and they had this critique of ergonomics that said, you know, when you're sitting in a perfectly ergonomically designed chair, your body becomes invisible. Like, it's, it, it's designed specifically so that you don't feel it. Um, and in contrast, if you're, you know, walking and then the ground is suddenly a little uneven, you're kind of shocked into remembering that you have a body. And that in itself is like a really valuable kind of way of reconnecting with ourselves and kind of maintaining a sort of sense of like health and safety and, and well-being. Um, it does become more challenging, I think, when we're trying to create standardised regulations under the kind of banner. I mean, standardisation is problematic anyway, but um, I imagine that, you know, when she was alive, my 97-year-old nan probably... She has macular degeneration and, you know, not that flexible generally as a person, would have had a really hard time in an Arakawa and Gin. So, like, how do, you, how do you make something that has, like, spatial kind of depth and um, there's a kind of, like, a gradient of different sort of spatial qualities um, and allows us to kind of, like, treat the world as, like, one big parkour um, but not put people at kind of risk, you know, um, so I think those are the things that regulations try to grapple with. And I just wish that the value system that kind of like was underpinning all of these regulations was just made a little bit more obvious. It was just made visible. And I think part of this project for me is really about rendering visible the thing that is already there. Like we've already made judgments about what constitutes safety. Um, we don't talk about it because we talk about it as though it's like a fact, but... Um, Someone has decided that on our behalf, um, and that's how our buildings kind of like form in response to it. Did that answer your question, Lido? Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks very much, Lauren, and thanks for everyone who um, came along today. It was really great to have you all here listening. Um, I'm going to now roll the credits. You can talk amongst yourselves while you do that, but if you're really interested, you can listen to me saying, 
Writing and Concepts is a lecture series where artists reflect on the role that writing plays in the development of their work. You can see past presentations on our Vimeo channel, vimeo.com forward slash writing and concepts. Be sure, of course, to follow us on Facebook and Instagram or sign up to our mailing list to be kept in the loop about this year's talks. Um, and you can do that at writingandconcepts.com.au. The next Writing and Concepts talk will be a presentation by Mags at Signal on Saturday, 26th of March. Look out for the details in your inboxes and on social media. Thanks, Lauren. listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.